Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Eric Topol, founder and director of the Scripps Translational Research Institute, a renowned cardiologist with multiple patents to his name. He's become a leading advocate in promoting personalized genomics-based medicine. Since the pandemic, Dr. Topol has focused on galvanizing input from the digital health community to promote better national surveillance of the path of COVID-19. Lori Robertson also checks in, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Eric Topol here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He's the executive vice president of molecular medicine at Scripps Research. Dr. Topol has published more than 1,200 peer-reviewed papers, multiple bestsellers, and is the editor-in-chief of the health industry publication Medscape. Dr. Topol, we welcome you back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks. Good to be with you both. You know, vaccine distribution is, has been accelerating with Pfizer, Moderna, and Janssen vaccines, all receiving swift emergency authorization. But uh, there are concerns about AstraZeneca's uh, vaccine and possible cherry picking of safety data that they supplied to the federal uh, regulators and some possible side effects that we've all been reading about in Europe. And I wonder if you could just address the AstraZeneca controversy and whether it might fuel distrust or mistrust uh, around other vaccines. Right. Well, this is a very significant issue with respect to the cherry picking of data. So what we understand, and we're awaiting final data, is that um, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, which is the same one for all the vaccines except for Pfizer, so-called Operation Warp Speed, working with NIH, they were in constant communication with AstraZeneca through the course of their United States trial. And during that trial, as it came to the end in March, the uh, Data and Safety Monitoring Board saw the final data set and they said, that's what you should be disseminating. But rather, uh, instead, AstraZeneca decided to uh, use the data from February 17th, which was not the final data. It was an interim analysis. It was incomplete. And so uh, based on the communications that we know of now, the efficacy is not 79% as was broadcasted by AstraZeneca on Monday this week. And what we don't know is the real number. Now, the vaccine is, I'm sure, going to be efficacious. We know that. But, but why would the company you know, not give the right data? And this is unprecedented in my career as far as experience in clinical trials. Uh, it's very disturbing and it undermines trust. So it's very uh, likely that the EUA will be granted in the weeks ahead by the FDA for this vaccine, but this was unnecessary. This is a kind of self-inflicted damage, unfortunately. And it's not the first time this company has uh, done that. You know, there, there are issues that are beyond that. Uh, the one you mentioned with respect to these rare clotting events mm -hmm. that occurred in multiple European countries and stirred a lot of concern last week, uh, Germany, Norway, Spain, and others. These are rare, likely vaccine-induced 
exceedingly rare. Um, they are young, healthy people that get this very low platelet count and then develop clotting that's you know, quite diffuse, uh, multi-organ. Now, this can occur with all the vaccines, you know, any vaccine. It sets off an immune response. The thing that is disturbing here is it looks like it's slightly increased risk with this vaccine. And again, lack of transparency, that's mm -hmm. the theme. Instead of giving us uh, a full disclosure of all the cases and what happened, so the medical community will have complete confidence, uh, they didn't do that. They just said it's not related to the vaccine or it's uh, very rare. Or, you know, it, I'm sure it is exceedingly rare, but the way to, to, to defuse this mm -hmm. is to provide the data and be transparent. So mm -hmm. this has been a problem with this particular vaccine manufacturer from the inception of the program for COVID, sadly. Well, I think you're absolutely right that uh, transparency is what's critical. And in order for us to be able to communicate that to the people that we're trying to uh, get vaccinated, we have to have confidence in the data so that we can give them assurance that that confidence is there. So thank you for being so clear about that. Um, you know, one of the uh, big concerns that we are uh, hearing about, reading about, and that people are talking about now uh, in our part of the country, and I think nationally and really across the world, is the issue of the variants. Uh, the UK variant, now the dominant strain uh, in the US, uh, certainly reading about what's happening uh, in Brazil, cases across Europe spiking. Um, what's most concerning to you about the impact of variants in this phase of the pandemic? I Dare I say, we thought we had just climbed a little bit towards the top <laughs> of the hill, and it looks like the hill just moved ahead of us. Right. Well, this is uh, the main topic of the day for the pandemic in the United States, for sure, is what about these variants? And the one that is most concerning is this UK B117. The reason for that is it's so highly infectious. It has a higher lethality. And um, it is, as you say, going to become the dominant strain throughout the world. And it is in certain parts of this country, it already has reached that greater than 50% a cause of infection. Now, the good thing, that's um, may gonna, we may be able to fend this off because the US has done a very good job with vaccination. Yeah. Maybe not perfect by any means, but we have some 86 million people who've had at least one dose, which is more than one in every four Americans. We have over 70% of the high risk group aged greater than 65 who've had at least one dose. So we've done pretty darn well in these months since late December. And if we do fend off the B117, as far as it not causing a big surge in cases, it'll be because of that. Because on the other hand, we've relaxed mitigation and many states have opened up and the wrong thing to do to, at this juncture. So that particular uh, good thing about that variant is it's highly responsive to vaccines. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the vaccines that are being used should war against it. And, you know, that's kind of the picture with the UK variant. The other variants, particularly the South African variant and the Brazil, uh, they are different. Their main property is so-called immune evasion. That is, the vaccines won't work quite as well, particularly the South African one um, is, is more in that line. But, the, the transmission or infectiousness um, doesn't appear, at least at this juncture, to be as problematic. Now, there are reports in Brazil, it could be 
uh, 250% or more. But that doesn't really make sense because we know the transmission for the UK variant is about 50% increased. Mm-hmm. If it was 250% increased for the Brazil variant, we would know it by now around the world. So their main issue is reinfection for people who've already had COVID, uh, but they're not gonna be outrun by B117. That's the strain that's gonna take over the world. The one that can transmit the best is the one that's most fit. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're gonna see in, in the in the next few months. Um, now, what about the New York variant? What about other new variants? Yeah. The New York variant appears to be more like the Brazil and South African with this immune evasion property, not so much the high transmissibility. And we may see other variants because we still don't have this virus in check. And remember, this is a worldwide story. Right. We're seeing big surges in Central Eastern Europe and also in South America and even Western Europe in places like Italy and other countries. So we're not over with this pandemic. The only thing that we can do now is not relax mitigation and keep up with the aggressive vaccination. And maybe we'll get through this. Uh, you know, we're going to get through it. The question is when. Yeah. And I- I'm still optimistic that by end of June, we'll be in very good shape. Great. Well, that, that's that's good news. And, and really, speaking of those variants and uh there have been a few recent studies that have been published that have shown a number of vaccinated uh, patients are testing positive, small numbers. Um, and I'm wondering that could be connected to this growing number of variants. You were talking about the B1526, the New York one, and obviously the bigger one, the B117 from, from England. Um, and I guess perhaps it's just another reminder that even if you get the vaccine, it's important to be vigilant, right, with the uh, public health protocols, as you were saying, uh, while vaccination efforts continue to scale. Right, this, this so-called breakthrough when you've had a vaccine and you get COVID, so far, it's actually remarkable that uh, there hasn't, it hasn't been associated with symptoms. Uh, it's right. the chance of you actually getting sick after the vaccine, it's just remarkable. And I, I take this moment just to you know, point out a, a paper that we wrote, uh, Dennis Burt and I, superhuman vaccines. That's what this is. We are so lucky. I mean, I just can't even emphasize this enough that we have these vaccines with extraordinary efficacy that are better than our immune system. Better, far better. So the point is, if you just had COVID, you could get a reinfection. But if you had the vaccine, the chance of you getting um, an infection is just so symptomatic, is so incredibly low. Now, you could harbor the virus in your nasal mucosa and you could potentially, not low likely, but you could potentially be a carrier. But you're in a, you're, the chance of getting sick is, it's not nil, but it's very low, very, very low. So these vaccines are just, uh, you know, one of the greatest triumphs of biomedicine in history. Well, I really appreciate the, uh, the absolute enthusiasm you have about that. I think it's so true, and I'm not sure that message has been broadcast out there uh, as loudly as it should. So thank you for that. And, and along with that, uh, Certainly, we need to celebrate uh, what uh, the president has uh, says. Science is back uh, under, <laughs> under President Biden. Right. And we're seeing this with the, the CDC and the way they're coming forth with their information. That certainly, there was some erosion of confidence and trust uh, in some of our vital public institutions uh, over uh, the, the last year. What are you seeing uh, coming up in terms of how this administration is going to 
use the lessons from last year to build a more robust public health infrastructure uh, in the country and to restore trust in, in science and in public health? Well, you know, it hasn't been all that long since uh, uh, January 20th to now, and uh, we've seen remarkable strides. I, the thing that I think about every day is if we had the current administration uh, a year ago, what kind of different footing yeah. we'd be on right now. I mean, we wouldn't have lost over, you know, 530,000 Americans. So I, I see the restoration of trust is happening quickly. Uh, and the funding through both the, um, the shunting of $200 million from the government to the CDC for genomic surveillance, in addition to the a good portion of the 1.9 trillion uh, in the rescue package. These are things that are going to help restore uh, the public health ability to execute, to support opening in schools, to support rapid testing, to support all the things that we should have been doing a year ago. So, I, you know, I, I do think, um, and and the vaccination, obviously, you know, we're we've been relying on just tens of thousands of volunteers throughout the country. But if we had that better supporter, we could do better uh, and go faster. So these are all the things that we need to really uh, take control of the pandemic, contain the virus, and put it behind us, which we will. Mm -hmm. But you know, fortunately, we're on the right path now. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute and editor of Medscape. His Twitter feed has become a trusted daily digest of scientific analysis around COVID-19. You know, I'm wondering, Dr. Topol, the pandemic has really accelerated the pace of life science research. Often takes decades uh, to just a, a very uh, short uh, window. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about some of the remarkable scientific achievements uh, that have been realized, uh, and certainly uh, you, you just were talking about the vaccine, uh, but monoclonal antibodies, digital surveillance, telehealth, and have you has this cross walked over into any other disease state or laid the foundation for some promising research? Right, Mark. Well, I, I did write a short essay uh, recently at Wall Street Journal on that, and. I think with the points I was trying to get across or just what you're alluding to, um, we've never seen uh, vaccines get developed right. uh, in 10 months right. uh, from, the, from the identity of the pathogen. Usually that's average for the successful vaccines, eight years. Right. And usually um, you know, the review by the FDA is a year, not three weeks. Uh, and everything has gone into a lightning speed the likes of which we've never seen in the history of biomedicine. Now, the exciting part of this is that it not only sets new standards of how fast we can move, but also, like for example, the mRNA platform used right. for the vaccines can be used and is being used to develop cancer vaccines, to develop autoimmune disease uh, interventions, uh, and also, and even neurodegenerative uh, intervention. So we have now a whole new biotechnology that's been validated now used in, you know, hundreds of millions of people, which we didn't have before. Right. So uh, the, the spin outs here, you know, it's kind of like, remember how uh, the NASA program, we learned all these things in space that ultimately changed medicine, like, you know, Holter monitors and everything. It's so, kind of the same thing. We're mm -hmm. from the pandemic. We, we're, we're deriving so many uh, vital um, advances and speed, which, you know, used to be 
until now, the average time from an innovation to clinical practice use was 17 years. Right. And we've done that in less than a year. I mean, it's, it's astounding, you know, and as a student of, of medicine for over three decades, I, I, I'm stunned by this every day. And that's what, yep. you know, really gets me enthralled about how the progress has been made. Well, that's uh, incredibly exciting. And, and I will say that the pandemic has maybe overshadowed, I think, a little bit of the incredible work uh, that has been done over the last several years in a project that you've been guiding, the All of Us Precision Medicine Initiative at the NIH, which we've been proud to uh, participate in and to learn from and to share with people around the country. Uh, and it seems to me that that project, leveraging genomics and biometric data and AI, really focusing on engaging people who have not, and communities have not always been well represented uh, in research, uh, maybe had a lot to teach us in this pandemic as well about how we engage people, how we gain their trust, how we bring people in for um, a service or care or participation where they might have been left out. And I'm really curious, since you you sit in so many positions of leadership across these communities, have the lessons of the All of Us program informed uh, some of the recommendations about how we address the pandemic and also vice versa. We learned things in this pandemic that will be helpful uh, in the All of Us program, which for listeners who may not be as familiar is a long-term uh, project that Dr. Topol leads. Well, uh, All of Us is, you know, uh, most ambitious medical research program in American history. Right. You know, uh, pushing 400,000 participants to be followed for decades ahead. What's interesting there is more than half are underrepresented minorities. And the real, uh, I think, goal is getting every one of these people to become citizen scientists, mm -hmm. if they weren't already. Now, during the pandemic, we've seen that again with uh, people with long COVID. They form peer groups. They are citizen scientists. They're participating not just in surveys, but you know, now with sensors and yeah, um, testing whether or not vaccines will help them get out of long COVID. So we're seeing a citizen science movement, which it antedated all of us, but it's getting amplified now. It's really terrific to see because we can, we can engage with all these people remotely through their phone and we can get their data back to them. And we are all you know, basically democratizing medical information, trying to help each other. So we learn from it, uh, not just you know overall, but at the individual level. I think that's really gratifying. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to pull the thread on a couple of things that we've talked about and you've said, and certainly uh, we're in a different world uh, than we were uh, last year uh, with the new administration. You've talked about their commitment to science. You've uh, obviously they're uh, backing that up with financial resources and more to come. Talk just a little bit now about uh, making sure that the BIPOC population, the po diverse population in our country are represented in uh, all the work that we do, the clinical trials, uh, it's building this sense of confidence. And then just a few minutes ago, you and I were chatting about sort of a vision for the future in healthcare. And I wonder if you could just expand a little more on it. What, what might that average citizen be looking at over the next three or four years or be hopeful about as you think about this confluence. You've, you've been certainly a promoter of uh, telemedicine, telehealth, uh, but, but talk about how this, this inflection point that we're at now, how it might translate 
and it won't be that long bedside to, to bench side to bedside 17 years, but we might see some rapid adoption. Uh, paint that picture a, a little more for us. Well, I think the, the conduit is the smartphone. Um, and for people who don't have a smartphone or don't have broadband internet, we should be giving people a smartphone and data plans because the phone and years of data plans is cheaper than one night in the hospital or one visit to an emergency room, mm -hmm. which are average five to $2,000 respectively. So we have to think smarter about using the technology we have and Moore's law that got us to this point. No one's really doing that yet, but we should be doing it. And so what I envision is that, you know, we will, people, the mobile phones aren't going away. They're just going to get even more center stage for mm -hmm. uh, healthcare and uh, apps to help people manage their conditions or prevent their conditions. And so that's where we're headed is, you know, a, um, we have to reach out to people that don't have technology so that every single American, if we're talking about the U.S., is on a level uh, footing with respect to access. And that's how we reach them and that's how we can get them vaccinated and that, if, if they are willing. And you know, there's so much we can do once we use that synapse. Uh, and we know that people who have these smartphones are totally relying on them for, it's, it's above food and water in terms of necessity. Absolutely. We just have to get them to everybody. And we haven't done that. We still at, you know, maybe 15, 20% of our population doesn't have this technology. Well, and, uh, just, just, just note the FCC is launched a $3.2 billion for low-income people to get broadband, which is going to be, we'll tell our listeners more about it later, but in, in April it opens up, which should go at the heart of what you're saying, which is leveling this playing field so everybody has that access. Yeah, this technology is never going to go away. It's just going to get better. You know, we got with 5G and just faster and more data flow. And, you know, I think it's time now that we get everybody uh, who, if, if, if there's a problem of affordability, uh, we, we fix it. Yeah. But these are small investments. When we're spending, you know, $2 trillion, th this, is, this is a tiny uh, line item. And it's just, it befuddles me that we haven't done this. When you think about the cost of American healthcare, yeah. mm -hmm. which is astounding. Um, so I, I hope we'll see that uh, come along. I, I dare ask the question: What what publication are you are you working on right now that might hit? Well, we just we have a long COVID one coming out hopefully soon about you know people they develop a very fast heart rates for months. Um, yeah. They go from seventy to one hundred. Yeah. And so in addition to their symptoms, they they have physiologic objective signs that are we're going to learn a lot more about long COVID. It's a it's a yeah. it's a big residual of our inadequate efforts last year. The cases of long COVID, you know, it, it may be 10% of the 30 million confirmed yeah. cases, at least. Yeah. What What's your sense just uh, about the pediatric, the need for pediatric vaccines? I think it's essential. Even though they, they don't get sick very often, they're still carriers. I mean, there's still some who do get sick and get that MISC, yeah. you know, horrendous condition, even yeah. though that's exceedingly rare. So we have to get everybody, yeah. you know, across the board. Uh, hopefully the kids' uh, vaccine work will get done pretty quickly. We've been speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, the editor of Medscape, author of several bestsellers, including The Patient. We'll see you now. Follow his work by going to drericktopol.com 
or follow him on Twitter at Eric Topol. Dr. Topol, we want to thank you for being a lighthouse in this pandemic storm, uh, for being a voice of trust in region of reason and science, and for fostering collaboration across the global scientific community. And thanks for joining us once again on Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks very much, Margaret and Mark. Great to be with you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? A Food and Drug Administration presentation on monitoring the safety of COVID-19 vaccines listed possible adverse events the agency might track, but an Instagram post misrepresents the document, falsely claiming it shows the vaccines are known to cause harmful side effects, including death. It's just one example of misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines that is circulating on social media. The popular Instagram post cites a government document to falsely claim that federal officials know that the COVID-19 vaccines cause death and other dangerous side effects. But the post is wrong. The FDA presentation it cites, which is publicly available, doesn't say that. And there is no evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines have caused any deaths. The FDA presentation was given at an October 30th meeting of a CDC advisory committee. The presentation outlined a variety of ways that FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research would monitor vaccine safety once COVID-19 vaccines were available. One slide in the presentation showed a, quote, working list of possible adverse event outcomes. These are outcomes the FDA could possibly monitor once a vaccine was authorized. Daniel Salmon, director of the Institute for Vaccine Safety at Johns Hopkins University, told us officials develop a list of adverse events to monitor in order to proactively ensure the vaccine rollout is safe. And there's a difference between a report of an adverse event following immunization and an adverse event caused by the vaccine, he said. Anyone can submit a report of an adverse event that occurred after immunization through the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. With more than 109 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines administered in the U.S. as of March 15th, the CDC received 1,913 reports of deaths that took place after someone received a vaccine. And on March 15, the CDC said that none were linked to the vaccination. Quote, a review of available clinical information, including death certificates, autopsy, and medical records, revealed no evidence that vaccination contributed to patient deaths. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, 
Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When venture capitalist and Shark Tank co-host Mark Cuban decides to sink a couple of hundred thousands of dollars into your business idea, you're probably onto something. And that's what happened to Olivier Noel, a medical student and young geneticist at the University of Pennsylvania, when he appeared on the popular ABC show. Noel learned that no matter how many resources the clinical study has, it is still extremely difficult to get a large sample of participants to join in studies, especially ethnic diversity. So he thought, what if you could eliminate the barriers to research participation and build up a rich DNA database for future research all at the same time? And he created DNA Simple. I think the idea came about right around my second year of my PhD. There was sequencing ability, there was enough funding for uh, really amazing research projects, but it ended up being a little bit of a chasing game where we couldn't build strong enough cohorts at first. Some of the patients we were looking for, it was taking a very long time for them to come. And so I ended up going to a genetics conference and the keynote speaker there was alluding to a similar problem. And one of the ways they were able to contact patients was through Facebook. So the joke at the time at the conference was that, you know, Facebook is the new way of doing genetics. So I wanted to sort of leverage the internet and particularly leverage social media to be able to build a national database where somebody did not need to be a patient to be able to participate in this research study. All the participants have to do is to take a simple swab of the inside of the mouth, send it in, and wait to see if your specific DNA is of interest to researchers. Noel says that the company will make their DNA and disease data available to researchers studying specific diseases, offering those researchers a much broader spectrum of study participants. So one of the things we really wanted to do with DNA Simple is to allow for the possibility of doing longitudinal study so that you keep continue keeping contact anonymously, obviously, with a particular donor. If you're doing a study, for example, and you have the ability to collect samples now, collect samples in three months, and see how that varies, which is very difficult to do um, if you're going to be in contact with a patient once. And the study participants themselves receive an extra something for choosing to participate, a cash stipend for offering up their DNA to research. So we ultimately provide a minimum of $50 every time somebody provides a saliva sample. DNA Simple, a vetted database linking researchers with a broad array of participants to enhance lab research by eliminating the barriers to finding participants. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.